should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome. Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. Thank you so much for joining me here on the second day of October this Monday. Woke up with some really horrible, tragic news out of Las Vegas, as you all might have heard. Uh, I went to bed last night with uh, headlines that two have been shot dead in Las Vegas and then woke up with over 50 people who have died because of this shooting incident, this tragic and heinous act of violence. I have so many emotions. I'm enraged. I'm saddened like so many of you um, out there who have heard of this news. The media is going to do what the media oftentimes, uh, what they do, which is start to dissect into the psyche of this shooter, what might have been his motive, who was he, what kind of person was he, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And I think that you know, well, for some of you, that might answer questions that you have and that you deserve to know. I'm, I'm thinking. Of course, I'm thinking about gun control. Of course, I'm thinking about mental illness here in this country and what we're doing. Of course, I'm thinking about what are we supposed to do during a, a situation like this. I mean, for those of you who have kids, how will you tell your kids? How will you tell them what happened? Are you going to say that it was a, a man who went crazy and, and, and uh, that he was or, or maybe you'll use the president's choice of words that it was evil, that it was pure evil and look to God for answers? Or are you going to say that he had access to weapons to weapons for mass killings, weapons that are meant to kill, to kill people. Why do we have access to these types of weapons? That's what I want to know. But it, 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 it definitely doesn't end there. I mean, I think, I think humans in general have the capacity to snap. I think humans in general, especially now with Google, we all have something from our past that people can draw parallels from that might... That might you know, characterize you as something, but it still doesn't solve, doesn't solve or provide a solution to these types of mass killings. I mean, 58 people and what they're reporting is that the, the shootings occurred maybe, you know, a matter of, of minutes, five to six minutes, 58 people dead, hundreds, hundreds, over 400 people injured. That's the kind of that's the kind of danger, that's the kind of loss of life that these weapons are meant or designed to do. Why do we have access to them? 
That's the question I have. Tune in tomorrow for a discussion about gun control as we invite the Brady campaign on to the Michelle Miao Show. For today, we're going to talk about the Japanese internment camp and what we can learn from that situation of our history, of American history, and why it's so important to understand that history is repeating itself as the president seeks to pass his travel ban against Muslim countries. We'll speak to Abby Ginsberg, who is a filmmaker and has a new film that will be premiering in San Francisco, and then they came for us. That focuses on the Japanese internment camps. And then the second half, we'll speak to a professor in translating a Russian poet's work and what that means as far as homosexuality goes, as far as the freedom of expression. So we'll do all that. Let's get today's program started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And Then They Came For Us is a documentary that focuses on the Japanese internment camp. Our guest today on the phone is filmmaker Abby Ginsberg. Abby, welcome to the program. Hi, nice to be there. So let's talk about And Then They Came For Us, a documentary that will be uh, featured here in San Francisco, a perfect time really to to have this documentary as the president is trying to pass uh, an executive order of his own that's being challenged by um, many people who filed lawsuits and being heard uh, by the Supreme Court as far as a travel ban. But And Then They Came For Us is a documentary that focuses on the Japanese internment camp and an executive order during uh, President Roosevelt's time, Executive Order 9066, that ordered over 120,000 Japanese Americans into incarceration. Um, let's talk about the documentary as, as how, it's, how it's been produced. I mean, this goes back and it looks at photos that were taken by photographers like Dorothea Lang and uh, Adam Ansel um, that captures what exactly happened, which I believe that the government tried to have a complete different narrative of what exactly happened, right? Yes. So, so I, I think, you know, the, sort of one of the things that quote, gave birth to this documentary was there was a book that some photo historians in Chicago had recently produced. It hadn't yet been published called Un-American, the experience of Japanese Americans, the experience of the Japanese Americans incarceration during World War II. And these photos, which really for the first time, you know, were produced like at a coffee table level, you know, they were beautifully reproduced, you know, gave, gave sort of a new look to what these photographs had captured. And so the film was a way of trying to kind of more broadly get this story out into the public. And when we started it, uh, the travel ban, I think, had just, it was sort of just happening. And so suddenly there was this connection because the Trump administration folks were talking about the Japanese-American incarceration as a precedent for what they wanted to do to Muslims. And it was like, whoa, wait a minute here. Let's look at what we did to the Japanese Americans and look at it as the kind of constitutional violation of constitutional rights that never should have happened. And let's never talk about it as a precedent because it, A, it shouldn't have happened in 1941 and 42, and it definitely should not be happening in 2017. So what the photographs are, they are a window into what we really did back then. What does registration mean? What does it mean to be given, you know, 48 hours to pack up, you know, 
which you could carry and get ready to go first to a horse track and then to an incarceration camp. And and what was amazing when you sort of take another look at the Dorothea Lange photos is she captured people at this incredible moment of transition. So they're waiting online to be registered. They have no idea really what that's going to mean, but the anxiety and the stress on their faces speaks volumes. So that's mm-hmm. one thing. Mm-hmm. Then you see people with all their baggage and with all the stuff, you know, kind of being loaded onto trucks, and their next stop was either Canfaran in Northern California or the horse, whatever the horse track was in Southern California. Um, and then they spent four to six months there waiting for the camps to actually be built, and then they were sent to the middle of nowhere. So in George Takei's situation, you know, his family first went to the horse track, and then they were sent to rural Arkansas, you know, two-thirds of the way across the country to some godforsaken place in Arkansas. And the disruption and the amount of property that people lost, and, you know, the fact that based on government lies, and this is the other piece of the story, is that what was said in order to justify the incarceration, you know, yes, we had been bombed by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor, but there were no Japanese spies living on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Nobody was ever proved to be a Japanese spy. There was no ship-to-shore signaling. All the things that people said to justify the incarceration turned out to be lies. And so there is, you know, there are many, in my opinion, opinion anyway, many lessons to be learned from what, you know, how kind of the Constitution failed us and how people's willingness, sort of the silence of the rest of the country to let Japanese Americans get rounded up and shipped off to these camps Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. really speaks volumes to us today. So that, that was sort of, that's what gave rise to the film. And then as the film was being produced, you know, there were more and more demonstrations about the Muslim travel ban at airports, et cetera, demonstrating that today there is more resistance. And we're not abandoning Muslims who are being targeted by the Trump administration the way the Japanese Americans were, you know, abandoned by every other group in the country. Mm-hmm. So so anyway, so that, that sort of explains why we decided to make the film. Yeah, there's a uh, quote from an interviewee in the film, um, and that's by uh, photographer Paul Kitagaki Jr., who says, you know, uh, a photographer like Dorothea Lange was able to capture moments in people's lives when their lives changed forever. And if we did not have these photos, this story would be a blip in U.S. history. I really, you know, believe that, especially uh, finishing or completing watching the documentary. I mean, there were some things about being able to visibly see these photos and then have, you know, um, narration around it about the actual truth. Like, say, for example, some of the, I mean, a lot of the photos that the government had ordered to be taken, which was for their own use, right? That they had the full power and control of how the photos were taken. So they would never allow for uh, photographers to take photos of the barbed wires. And that really, um, manipulated what the experiences were actually like as other Americans were then told that Japanese Americans were glad to go to these concentration or I'm sorry, incarceration camps. Um, And they even called it what assembly camps versus what it was prison camps. They were called assembly camps. Um, They they were called, wait a minute, they were temporary assembly centers with a horse track. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then the camps were called relocation centers. And so, you know, I mean, come on. 
the, and, you know, and some of the people in our film refer to them as concentration camps. And, the, you know, the experience uh, of people was horrendous. I mean, you know, when people describe, quote, the horrors of what it was like to be in these camps. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think Paul Kitagaki's thing about this is the point at which people's lives change forever is really right and prescient. And he really, you know, he kind of nails what Dorothea Lange was able mm-hmm. to see through the lens of her camera. What's One re- of the points that, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I mean, you know, on top of that, what's really scary is the fact that, uh, I mean, you brought it up, the silence of, of Americans and how we basically justified the actions of the government in this type of discrimination, this type of uh, violation of constitutional rights of Americans by, uh, first of all, listening to the lies, but at the same time, um, you know, taking the bait of how they were generalizing the entire process or justification for why we were doing this as a as a military response to Pearl Harbor. Um, I, I wanted to ask you really about uh, the how scary is it to have completed a documentary like this, uh, be reminded of what happened in our history that shouldn't happen, and what's happening now with the current travel ban? Well, I mean, are they, are they very similar in what the government's well, trying to do? Okay, so, uh, so a couple of things. It took many years to unravel the fact that the government was lying. I mean, that's one of the things. So you want to you wanna kind of, it's hard for any of us living today, and who we're not alive in the you know, early 40s, to understand it's sort of the mindset of the American people having, you know, having our country attacked at Pearl Harbor, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, we're missing that. And, and I think it made the country vulnerable to a lot of misinformation, which was, you know, Japs bomb Pearl Harbor. Japs need to be evacuated from West Coast. Japs doing ship-to-shore signaling, you know, with their Japanese counterparts, et cetera. So, you know, there was a huge propaganda campaign that justified a lot of what went on during the incarceration. And, you know, and let me say one other thing, which is we don't make a lot of it in the film, but it is absolutely true that there, this, it didn't all just begin with Pearl Harbor because there had been, you know, the representation of Japanese Americans in popular media, in movies, in cartoons, etc., was very unflattering. And so there was a certain sowing of, you know, a combination of sort of hatred and prejudice against Japanese Americans that preceded what happened when we went into full gear right after Pearl Harbor. So, that, you know, what one of the things that George Takei says is he says, you know, the fields were tilled, so to speak. You know, that there was, there was a kind of a rightness and a readiness to absorb the anti-Japanese propaganda that went into full gear the minute Pearl Harbor happened. Mm-hmm. And that permitted us to be a country of sheep who didn't speak up about what was going on. And since I've done the film, so I've learned a few things. One is that Eleanor Roosevelt was fully opposed to it. So that's an important thing to know. And um, the American Friends Service Committee, the Quakers, spoke up. And there were a handful of American you know, neighbors of people on the West Coast who actually saved people's lives? Like you lived next door to a Japanese American family, and they got sent away. A handful of people actually protected the land and the possession of those families. But much more common was people raiding the places where people stored their goods, 
selling that you know the that the fact that they had to do kind of forced sales for almost no money and basically white families kind of moving in to where the Japanese Americans had worked for you know maybe two generations mm. to create a nursery to create a growing concern for you know flowers or whatever and it, you know and in, you know in the blink of an eye it was taken from them and at the end of the war just to make the point um, people ended up coming back to nothing and having to rebuild their lives. Again, George Takei tells us that, you know, they ended up on Skid Row, and it took a long time for his family to reestablish themselves. So many of these people had worked really hard for 20, 30, 40 years to create businesses that were finally thriving. They Mm -hmm. gave them up literally in less than 48 hours, and at the end of the war, they were given a $25, yeah, bus ticket and $25 until goodbye and good luck. Mm-hmm. You know, good luck rebuilding your lives. And right. then they came home to ongoing tremendous prejudice. So it was really, you know, kind of an outrageous thing. How how that relates to today, I think, um, I, you know, would I say that the reaction to, you know, opposing the Muslim travel ban and some of the other ways, I think the Japanese Americans um, who are speaking out on behalf of the Muslim community are teaching all of us about, you know, how to stand in solidarity with each other. I mean, because at the moment, we're not only, we not only have to worry about the Muslim Americans, we've got to worry about the DACA kids. We've got to worry about other immigrants whose families are being ripped apart by horrible new immigration policies. I mean, we have to stand together as a, you know, a united front around American values. Because mm-hmm. these values are being shredded by the Trump administration and you know, those in power in Washington at the moment. And so between our progressive Congress people and people in the streets and people who show up at airports and understand that we have to defend the DACA kids, et cetera, you know, we have, we have a lot of work to do right now. Right. Don't go away. We'll continue with the Michelle Miao Show right after these messages. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit idkevents.com for all your event production needs.
Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. I want to get into, you know, the the fighting back and the resistance because there were, um, you know, evidence of that, obviously, by uh, Fred Korematsu, who challenged the Supreme Court. But one question, you know, I have before we start talking about that is this government-caused hysteria that, you know, happens and that people don't necessarily understand or they're not um, reading enough or know, know who like actually experience enough of this to articulate it. But uh, so, for example, right, the good part in the documentary is that one of the justifications for uh, Japanese internment camps were uh, to be safe, that there were Japanese spies, you know, who were in the country or Japanese American spies. But when they all the people who they arrested as spies were not of Japanese descent. I mean, you kind of look at like what's happening right now. And we keep ta- the president keeps talking about national security as if we have had several um you know, terrorist attacks or foreign terrorist attacks here in the country when I think in the last five years, a majority of, of what I would consider terrorist attacks are homegrown or domestic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, again, it is a way, I mean, I, it, you know, we're all learning because we haven't actually lived through a period of this kind of um, government propaganda recently. You know, I think we're all learning about... Um, you know, the role that the Fox News side of the media plays versus the, you know, the side that sort of progressive public radio plays, or, you know, newspapers or whatever. I mean, I think we all have to become really educated consumers of the news that is being uh, given to us. Because one of the things that I think we learned in the last election, or maybe we've learned over the last three or four years, is that there is a huge echo chamber. And once, you know, once you start beating the drum about, you know, fears of Muslims, et cetera, et cetera, there is a certain segment of the population that is going to kind of believe that hook, line, and sinker because it is the only information that they are getting. And what I would say is that it's incumbent on the rest of us who have a broader worldview and understand that it is not about any one ethnic or religious or whatever group that, you know, there are individuals. I mean, like the crazy person in Las Vegas yesterday. You know, mm-hmm. there are individuals that are terrorists, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But that you don't you don't take that and then smear an entire group with that, mm-hmm. um, the way that we have been doing with Muslims after the nine eleven attack. Mm-hmm. So, I think the you know the issue about what it means to become an educated consumer of media and what it means to be able to call out when people are essentially you know whatever you call it, spewing propaganda or espousing propaganda. Um, I just think, and I, and I would say one other thing which is sort of helpful and part of how I sort of decipher where we are at any given moment. I feel like, you know, some of the, quote, progressive late-night TV shows do a great job of debunking some of what we're hearing on some of the other uh, news outlets. And so I'm very grateful to kind of the Trevor Noahs and the Stephen Colbert's of the world for 
giving us a better read on the media that is out there constantly. Um, but, you know, again, I'm making choices to listen to them and to sort of figure out, you know, what a bad day was, you know, when they're talking about the travel ban or something else. Um, and so I just think it's incumbent on all of us to become much more critical readers and viewers and listeners, mm-hmm. you know, when the drumbeat starts to really get louder. I mean, and, it, you know, it, it, it's happening constantly. You know, the idea that Trump is now attacking Puerto Ricans for not doing enough to, you know, rebuild after the devastation that they're experiencing. I mean, I'm getting emails daily from people who live in Puerto Rico, and it's like, there is no electricity, there is no food, there is no medicine. Whose fault is that? It was the result of a hurricane. Right. You know, so the idea that we're now blaming the Puerto Ricans for their own problems that were caused by Hurricane Maria, that is really screwed up. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, on every level, we are forced to kind of be in our toes, paying attention, trying to figure out where truth really lies, and debunking what is coming out of Washington. Right. And, you know, and I would say that there are some very good people in Washington trying very hard to, you know, get the word out and do the right thing. You know, and we need to support them because otherwise, you know, we are inching closer and closer to a kind of propaganda war that could be very scary in this country. So I want to talk about the resistance movement. I mean, you know, it's been uh, hashtagged in today's time to represent something that uh, might be considered, um, you know, I guess, in this modern world of of advanced technology. But in going back to your documentary and talking about the uh, internment camps of Japanese Americans, there was someone who was a resistor and resisted, and that's Fred Korematsu, who's actually, uh, uh, whose case um, led to, you know, his, his, the overturned decision of his conviction for refusing to be registered and incarcerated, um, you know, that was, that was a huge win in, in a lot of ways. But let's talk about Fred Korematsu's case. Okay, so what happened with Fred is that, you know, he really didn't want to go to one of these incarceration camps. And he didn't have the support of his family. He actually had an Italian girlfriend. And he said, you know, she wasn't going to be in charge. And he didn't want to leave her. And he was just, you know, he just resented and resisted. And then he got caught. He got arrested. And, you know, because he looked Japanese-American. And eventually got shipped off to Tanferan. And then I think probably Topaz is where his family ended up. Um, And, you know, and... He resisted, and he was prosecuted. And so the case, there were three of them. It was not just Fred. It was Gordon Hirabayashi and Ninya Sui. So there were three cases that were sort of all coordinated and went up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, in a very divided decision, uh, with some justices writing some very strong, you know, pro-Constitution defense, held that the Korematsu and the other two guys, that their convictions Essentially, they were upheld. And in 1944, the, it's known as the U.S. versus Kolomatsu case, you know, was issued, and it basically justified the Japanese, the incarceration of all Japanese Americans. It said it was a legitimate act of government authority. It was based on all these following things, like, you know, the presumption that there were spies on the West Coast and that people were doing the ship-to-shore thing, et cetera, et cetera. And that was the end of that. And the case 
state, as you know, as everybody says, been discredited, but it remains good law even today. Then, in the early 1980s, a group of Japanese American next generation lawyers, so people, you know, who were the sons and daughters of the Fred Kalamazis, but not Kalamazis' daughter, but anyway, a young group of Japanese American lawyers, in conjunction with a scholar from UC San Diego whose name was Peter Iron, Peter filed a lawsuit, and Peter had done the work. He was writing a book, and he found the information in some box that he found at the National Archives saying that all the, essentially, the testimony that they relied on in the Korematsu case was false. And he was able to prove, and they were able to take, you know, this information to court in San Francisco and Judge Marilyn Hall Patel in something called the Quorum Novus Action, which means you're sort of reopening the criminal conviction, but she can't reverse a U.S. Supreme Court case. But she found that the conviction needed to be overturned because it was based on a pack of lies. And had it not been for Peter Iron's really important work and the work of this, you know, kind of young team of Japanese-American lawyers, None of this would have ever happened. And then in 19, about 1983, I think, Judge Patel overturned Korematsu's conviction. And from that moment on, he was like a new person because he had been living. There's a line in the film where we talk about, Judge Patel says, I hear the government was trying to get Mr. Korematsu to accept a pardon. And he said, and I heard that Mr. Korematsu said, no, they probably need to apologize to me. I have not, I'm not accepting a pardon. They need to apologize to me. Mm-hmm. So basically, he wasn't about to consider a pardon. And in the end, she indicated his actions on the theory that the whole incarceration was based on a pack of lies. And mm-hmm. that was a huge decision. It, I mean, again, it doesn't reverse the Supreme Court case, but it it provides, at least in you know, in the public an understanding of what went wrong and how, if you're not careful and the government is permitted to lie to the Supreme Court, and we have to worry about whether that's going to happen again, um, you know, really bad decisions can be made. Uh, And, uh, you know, she became, uh, you know, quite a hero to people, to all the people who had been incarcerated because she was able to see and say that this never should have happened, and that this was a violation of everybody's constitutional rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, kind of more credit to her for reversing it. But as we say in the film, everybody needs to know that on the Supreme Court books, this case still stands. And so when the Trump administration tries to reference it in light of a Muslim travel ban, you know, it actually exists as some kind of precedent, even though, as we say, it should never be precedent for anything. But in the in the limited world of what a Supreme Court precedent is, it means that a decision is made and it's never been overturned. And that is the case with the Korematsu case. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, one thing to note is that the offspring of Korematsu, Hirabayashi, and Yasui have now filed an amicus brief in the travel ban case explaining why they think the Supreme Court you should not consider the Karmatsu case any kind of precedent. So, it, you know, we're continuing the fight. Um, the same lawyers that brought the original case are the lawyers of record for the amicus brief. 
And although nobody ever thought they'd ever have to be litigating this again, here we are. And, you know, that's, that's a lesson for all of us, which is, you know, just because you kind of you win a case at one point doesn't mean that you don't have to sort of fight the same battle at some point later. And right. so that's what's going on right now. Right. Here we are. Um, and very scary. I mean, just kind of creepy in how we've gone through this before. I mean, you know, Japanese Americans did receive an official apology from President Reagan um, and reparations in some ways. But it's still it's uh, from the documentary for the subjects who were interviewed like George Takei, like, you know, Karen Korematsu, who's uh, the, the daughter of Fred Korematsu. Um, and uh, Satsaki Ina, I mean, it's still, it still feel very fresh. Well, I think it is. And I think, you know, I want to say to both Karen Kalamaki, credit George Takei's credit and Satsaki Ina's credit. Here are people who have spent large parts of their lives, you know, committed to sort of the concept of never again. I mean, they work, you know, just tirelessly on behalf of educating the public about what this incarceration is about, making sure that, you know, uh, elementary school children hear about it. Karen has gotten us, a, you know, a statewide day. Fred Coromonsky Day is January 30th every year. And, you know, the Day of Remembrance, which is February 19th, the date on which the executive order was signed. So we have ways to commemorate this atrocity. And that becomes very important in terms of, you know, kind of deepening our understanding and spreading the word about what this country did back during World War II and why it is so important that we stay vigilant to make sure it does not happen again. Mm -hmm. um, and for everybody who's been engaged in these public education efforts, my hat is off to them because, you know, it's slow going. We just apparently, we, California, just enacted um, an assembly bill, I don't remember the number, that provides $3 million dedicated to education about the Japanese-American incarceration, and that goes into effect this January. And that's going to be state funding that, you know, helps prepare lesson plans and helps make sure that, you know, high school teachers are empowered with the tools that they need to teach this in a more, I guess, in a deeper way. Mm -hmm. All of which is, you know, very, very important because the way in which you prevent things from happening again to educate people who are alive now about what happened right. and creating a spirit of resistance to this. I mean, the Germans have finally started to do this around the Holocaust. And apparently, I haven't been there for a since they did it, but there are now all these plaques indicating who used to live in the building, what happened to them, that they were exterminated at one camp or another. And, you know, another another program that's similar is something that Brian Stevenson from Alabama, where he works in Montgomery, at something called the Equal Justice Initiative. He's going to do a memorialization of all the lynching sites. It's like the only way, you know, to make sure that these sorts of atrocities do not happen again is to bring it into the present and to make people sort of be standing on a stoop somewhere, and either whether it's Berlin or by a tree in Alabama, Mm -hmm. and really experience what that history means and how awful it was and how people lost their lives. And, and you, so, yeah. we, you know, this is, this is part of what this whole education effort is right. all about. Right. I was just going to say, and uh, that's what the documentary And Then They Came For Us does. The San Francisco premiere of And Then They Came For Us is Sunday, October 15th, 4 o'clock in the evening at the AMC on Van Ness. I'm sorry? 
Yeah, in the afternoon, not in the evening. <laughs> uh, you got it. Uh, in the afternoon, four in the uh, afternoon. Um, Abby, one last question for you. I mean, you know, we when when the first travel ban uh, executive order was announced, we saw, uh, you know, this this thing happen, this amazing thing happen of people who went to airports and sh- and protested to the point in which the ACLU was successful in shutting down or temporarily staying the executive order. Are you optimistic that we could fight the travel ban? Well, I think I, I don't know because I'm so pessimistic about Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. So I think he's terrible, and I think, you know, all the maneuverings that happened to put him on the court were so that in a situation like this, they knew they would have that vote. Whether or not they have Anthony Kennedy's vote, I have no idea. Um, so I'm, I'm on the, I, you know, it's like I'm not a Supreme Court prognosticator, so I don't actually know. But I'm concerned about, you know, sort of how Gorsuch sways the fight for majority, et cetera. And I think I always have thought and continue to think that if there are continued protests and people continue to speak out and people register their opposition to this travel ban, that that will somehow, you know, leak its way into the Supreme Court consciousness and might make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm not... I, to say I'm even cautiously optimistic, I'm, I'm right. I don't know what I think is going to happen here. But I know it is up to us to keep the pressure on about this. So that even if they make a bad decision, maybe other courts will make a better decision down the road. So, you know what I mean? It's like the, the key thing, I think, is that there's got to be a people's response to this that says not in our name, never again. We did it once. We cannot do it again. Um and I'm just going to say, if people want to, I just want to say one thing about the screening, which is that to get tickets, there is a link on our website, um, and just go to the screening page on the website, and the website is www.thentheycame.com. Thentheycame.com. Please join us on October 15th at 4 o'clock at the AMC on Van Ness. Thank you, Abby. Thank you so much for the documentary and for doing the work, and you're right. It starts with education. Um, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on the program. Well, thank you so much for having me. Bye. Make sure you go out to see the documentary, the San Francisco premiere of And Then They Came For Us, a documentary by Abby Ginsberg and Ken Schneider featuring George Takei. Happened Sunday, October 15th, 4 o'clock in the afternoon at the AMC on Van Ness. There are some additional screenings in the Bay Area. If you can't make the San Francisco one, head to and then they came doc.com for more information. Don't go away. We'll be right back with the Michelle Meow Show. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. 
and that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever. Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. Welcome back to the program. The Michelle Meow Show is your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. Our next guest is Vitaly Chernetsky. He is uh, part of the University of Kansas. Um, he's a, an associate professor of Slavic languages and literatures. And uh, in this next half hour, we're going to speak with him about a new chapter that he's written in which he examines and translates Slava Mogutin's writing into uh, English, and Slava Mogutin being one of the most notable LGBTQ Russian um, public figure. In fact, one would argue that he could be considered Russia's first gay public figure post-Soviet era. Let's welcome Vitaly to the program. Vitaly, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And so I just mentioned it. Let's start with that. Let's start with the fact that... uh, Mogutin could absolutely be considered Russia's first gay public figure as a poet, as a writer. Uh, Something about the style of his writing, even his own personality in coming out. There's nothing apologetic about him in some ways. Talk to us about why he could be considered Russia's first gay public figure. Yes, uh, this was uh, really quite a remarkable thing because as... um, most of us know the Soviet Union actually, uh, despite uh, its early commitment to uh, gender equality and liberation of um, everyone, including uh, the sexual minorities uh, from the 1930s onward, became a very repressive country. There were sodomy laws, there was uh, forced uh, institutionalization in 
mental hospitals uh, for uh, lesbians. And uh, the sodomy laws were repealed in various countries of the former Soviet Union uh, only in the 1990s. In Russia, they were repealed in May uh, 1993. And uh, as a result, uh, people did not have the courage to be out, and there was no one uh, uh, of any position in prominence about whom it was publicly known that this person is uh, lesbian or gay, uh, let alone bisexual or transgender. And uh, so the situation started changing really radically with uh, the very final months of the existence of the Soviet Union. And Slava Magutin was one of those people. He was young at the time. He was born in 1974. So when he was 16, 17 years old, he was a uh, brave uh, young poet and aspiring journalist who was never closeted. He was out uh, as a gay man from the very beginning of his public life. And this was something absolutely unprecedented in the context of Russia. Now, he also he, became, um, you know, the, the, the thing about uh, Mogotin is that he, he has a lot of characteristics of many LGBTQ leaders that we know who, you know, use art, use writing, prose, poetry to express themselves. And, you know, one would argue like this, uh, drag queens are even artistic expressions of, of uh, identities, of LGBTQ identities. Um, d- did he ever identify as an activist? I mean, he, I, you know, I know that in 1995, I mean, he basically became the first Russian person to be granted asylum to the United States based off of sexual orientation. And and so I'm just wondering with these types of experiences, if he first saw himself as an activist before he saw himself as a writer, or is it all in the same? Well, he basically was very much... Um a, an activist in the sense that he was a very public uh, cultural figure, and he was uh, someone who tried to, uh, I mean, he, he broke through as a, uh, first as a journalist, and he was able to uh, publish interviews with uh, prominent uh, Western figures from uh, the LGBT community, uh, writers, artists, uh, uh, political figures from the history of the of gay liberation in uh, Russian media. And he was also translating into Russian uh, uh, works of uh, writers of the B generation, uh, like Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs, focusing uh, on those uh, texts that were earlier censored and not available in Russian, because basically throughout the Soviet period, some of the works of the writers uh, who were gay were being translated uh, in the Soviet Union. There was a very active program of translation of foreign literature and culture, but all gay content was always edited out. 
whether it was the dubbing of films, whether it was the translation of works of poetry and prose. So it uh, was uh, really shocking and unexpected uh, for the Russian audiences to find out that some of these uh, familiar figures from global culture, thanks to efforts uh, by Slava and some of his peers, uh, that they uh, spoke in this very forthright way. And uh, basically, for many of these uh, feelings and statements, there wasn't yet even a worked-out Russian tradition of public speaking, because there was some uh, homoerotic poetry published early in the 20th century. There was a little bit of... uh, work done by writers uh, in the global diaspora, the emigres. There was a Russian-language poet active in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro, who really wrote about his experiences during the sexual revolution of the 60s and the 70s. But uh, they were not known. There was an underground culture of uh, camp talk uh, in Russian, similar to the one that existed pre-Stonewall, in the West, but it was an underground culture which had primarily oral existence. So uh, he really pioneered the ways of actually putting down in writing and having these things expressed in Russian in print. Um, That was uh, quite shocking and a great breath of fresh air. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Talk to us about, you know, the writing style as it... um as it would make sense to someone who is Russian. I mean, as far I know that you had mentioned it's it's like in your face, or it, he he chose um, ways to describe identity that was I think unapologetic is a is a good word to use, which I used earlier. Um, but there's so many ways, right, to describe identity. How how did he do that, especially? Um, in Russian and uh, and and having readers, uh, you know, from Russia who may not have agreed or may have felt like it was too much. Well, uh, he uh, it was stunning because his writing has a certain sense of ease. He has a natural talent. Uh, I mean, having known him personally now for. Uh, over 20 years, I mean, it's uh, remarkable to see actually him walking around with a notebook and writing down poems uh, in all sorts of, you know, unexpected uh, opportunities. Uh, And uh, he uh, indeed uh, modeled his poetic persona on some familiar earlier figures uh, that are associated with the counterculture movement. So going back to the French poet uh, Arthur Rimbaud in uh, the late 19th century, who also was um, as openly gay as one could be in Paris of that time, or the early Russian futurists. They, uh, none of the figures among them was openly gay, but they certainly uh, very much had uh, this public persona of uh, being willing to shock the society out of complacency. So the early poetry of Mayakovsky, a great 
a Russian poet uh, associated with the futurist movement, was also an inspiration. And learning from American culture, especially from the Beats, uh, but also mm -hmm. from the New York school poets like Frank O'Hara, and um, things uh, that were associated with the New York artistic scene in the 60s, uh, 70s, and 80s. So the linkage between uh, LGBTQ uh, politics and culture and the general broader context of counterculture, whether it's in rock music, in painting, in other visual and performing arts, this is something that he was thrilled about, and this is something that he sought to um, promote through personal examples, through forging ties uh, with others, and by trying to do some similar things in uh, the Russian context. The early 90s uh, were a remarkable time in uh, Russia in that it was a time of great uh, economic privation, of a severe economic crisis, but also of stunning, unprecedented political and cultural freedom. So there were... The, uh, multitudes of new publications, um, censorship uh, was completely abolished. Uh, there was a very active and uh, interesting club culture. Um, you know, Russians discovered raves and things of that kind. So all of these things were in the air and happening and going really fast in that having been cut out of the global cultural uh, conversation uh, for decades, uh, ordinary Russians, especially people who are not from elite and privileged backgrounds, Slava also being a case in point, rushed to catch up and experience almost in this concentrated time version uh, the things that uh, their peers in the West went several decades to get through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the things you point out in your chapter about Mogotin's uh, work is that, you know, it was very much uh, a part of his life experiences. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, you wrote it yourself. He continues his journey of exploring his self and the world in his work. And almost reaching out as well by touching on, uh, you know, identifying as Russian, um, being connected with his masculinity, and also making it into life and art. Um, and in a lot of ways, I, I like what you wrote about it being like psychotherapy for him. Talk to us about what you mean about that. And, you know, I, I almost feel like many LGBTQ people will relate to that. But being Russian LGBTQ, that can be extremely important when you, you have a government or you have people who um, are suffocating your identity. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the environment is very repressive um, the, uh, in terms of uh, the general cultural context and uh, the way uh, for many people how family members relate and... Uh, 
in uh, Slava's case, it was no exception. Uh, from what I know, his father is extremely homophobic and so was certainly not happy about his son coming out at a very early age. Uh, so, yes, both uh, in his early days uh, back in Russia and since he came to the U.S. and received political asylum here in the mid-90s, he has been, uh, he's now become, in a way, a different kind of a global cultural force. He continues being active in literature. He is also very active in visual art as a photographer and as an artist. He actually has just had two new books as a visual artist published earlier this year, and they are wonderful. So he is interested in the finding the special part of the LGBTQ experience that uh, um, makes it uh, revolutionary, that makes uh, many of us uh, braver and willing to take risks. Uh, and uh, while uh, there is a lot of trauma in finding uh, our own selves and embracing them and being comfortable with them, we also have the tradition of uh, building our own chosen families reaching out to allies, uh, reaching out in history and, uh, and across space to other places around the globe for um, examples uh, for emulation, for you know, developing these kind of solidarities. And this has been something that he very actively explores, trying to find a place for himself as a creative person and as unapologetically openly queer person um, in the, the world of ours that is changing very fast. And how do you stay true to yourself and not just succumb to commodification of identity and uh, being true and authentic? And he uh, keeps on going back to that uh, and this is an active concern of his in his poetry, in diary writing, in prose, in his visual artwork. Um, so I think this is uh, remarkable, and it is being rediscovered in Russia. Uh, mm -hmm. There is a very serious process of reassessment now of that legacy of the 1990s, now that you know a quarter century separates us fr uh, from it. And... Uh, some of it uh, was being dismissed as just crazy excesses after the Soviet Union collapsed, but uh, now there is a much more serious uh, view developing of the values of that, and especially as the Russian society, in fact, becomes comfortably commodified if you're not... Uh, dissenting politically, Moscow at least, um, several other cities also, are very comfortable and glitzy places to live in. But if you dare being different even slightly, this can have devastating consequences. Vitaly, thank you so much for joining us here on the program, and thank you for your work. Thank you. Uh, it is an honor to be a part of your program. Thanks so much. The title of the chapter is 
Literary Translation, Queer Discourses, and Cultural Transformation, Mogatine Translating, uh, slash Translating Mogatine. And it's part of a new book titled Translation in Russian Contexts, Culture, Politics, and Identity, edited by Brian James Bear and Susanna Wood. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemiao.com.